the most compassionate and loving person. And though you correct us and discipline us, it's always for our good intention. It's for our good ultimately. And Father, I pray today as we open up our hearts to you that you will speak into our lives, that you will liberate us, Lord, from things that have tripped us up. Lord, areas in our lives where we've experienced uh, frustration and defeat in our lives. And I pray today that you will set us free, that we will live in spiritual authority and victory the way you designed it to be for our lives, O oh God. I pray today that we will live in the power of your Spirit, Lord, enjoying life the way you designed it for us as human beings to live. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many know that it's generally after high points in our life that low points many times follow? How many have kind of discovered that? And I was thinking of Elijah the prophet. If you know the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah takes on all of the apostasy of his nation. He's standing on Mount Carmel. He's confronting 850 false prophets. He's got the nation paying attention to him. They do not manage to bring down fire from heaven. And then we have this one lone guy, Elijah. And of course, he's God's prophet, and he calls down fire from heaven. People are shouting, Yahweh is the Lord, Yahweh is the Lord. I mean, it was just a, talk about a high point. You know what I mean? This guy living in obscurity comes to the prominence of the nation. He brings the nation back to God. I mean, what more could you ask for if that's your ministry, right? And then when we read in the very next chapter, chapter 19, he's living at a low point. Because the queen now, who is a follower of Baal, threatens to kill him. You know, and poor Elijah is beside himself. He's running away. He's hiding under a tree. And you hear the lament of his soul saying, God, I'm the only one left. Kill me. I mean, he's suicidal. He's battling depression. He's going through a huge gamut. So he has this high moment. And then you read a very low moment in his life. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, how can we eliminate that kind of stuff in our lives? Is it possible not to be, you know, way up, way down, but actually to experience a life of spiritual victory and not allow the things of this world and the things that are assailing our soul to define our lives? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at King David. We're going to look at an incident in his life that I believe reveals something of the nature of God's mercy. And in First Chronicles chapter 20, all the way into chapter 22, we read a, a, a moment in his life that affects the nation. Now, I want to just make two quick comments. Number one comment is simply this. How many realize that, you know, what our leaders do affect the nation's? You know, think about what's happening in Washington and Moscow and Ottawa and all of these capitals where leaders are making decisions that are going to have a great impact on the people around them. How many know that's true? You know, so we, we, we are admonished to pray for our leaders and there's a good reason for it. And yet we're going to see that David makes an amazing decision. It's not a good one. And the nation suffers. But I'm also going to show you in this passage that David made a decision because God wanted to address something inside of the nation. Sometimes the decisions that are rendered are actually a form of discipline 
not only to the leader, but also to the nation. And sometimes we get the leaders we deserve. Ouch. Right? You know what I mean? You know, sometimes in our, in our lives, we are not, I'm not talking about you as an individual. You may be doing the right thing, but I'm talking about a nation as a whole. Collectively, we look at our nation of Canada, maybe we're just getting what we deserve. And that's a thought I want to just bring out as we look at this text this morning. Now, how many recognize that often when we have a lot of good things happening in our life, and there's a lot of blessings. We, we can become full of ourselves. We can become full of confidence, not necessarily in God, but in our abilities, because after a while you just think you're doing it. You know, I remember years ago when I was pastoring our church, the first 10 years were really amazing here. Uh, everything we did worked. I'm serious. It was just amazing. And you know, when you start out and you're like, I was, my first pastorate was this church. You know, I'm 30 years old. I, I get the pastor, six people. I was all excited. I was gung-ho. I mean, this, Amy, I was pumped, you know, walking around gung-ho. You know, I'm excited. I'm pastoring, you know. And uh, we had about 30 people coming to our meetings, but six committed people. And then within a year and a half, we had over 300 people attending the church. How many know that's pretty amazing? You know, churches kind of grew like crazy. And, and the next thing you know, we're buying property and we're building this facility. And every decision we made worked. And after a while, you just think, if you make the right decisions, you get the right results. And after a while, you think you're doing it. And just to show me that I wasn't doing it, God led me away from our, our church for a number of years. And everything I did didn't work, you know. And I, I started realizing, you know, and God says, oh, by the way, all the things that you thought you were doing, I did those things. And all the things that you think you're doing now that are not working, I, I'm just showing you. you. You can't do anything. And so I had a great you know, experience in life to show me personally that it's God that does these things and not we ourselves. You know, every, everything that's true about all of our lives, the gifts that you have, the abilities that you have, the experiences that you have, God has brought those things into your life. And that should be humbling to us, and we should be thankful that God's allowed us to be a part of what He's doing. And if we have any measure of success, really God's the one that brought it about. But when we're on the top of the pile, we forget these things. And, but we remember when we're on the bottom of the pile. It, it just, you know, we finally get it. It's, it really hits us with impact. Now, do we realize that it tends in the Christian life to be cyclical? You know, we, we, we know some of this stuff, but when things are going good, we, we have a tendency to forget God. Isn't that true? If you study the nation of Israel, when things are going good, they tend to forget God. And then when they forget God, they just do their own thing, and eventually they get in trouble again. And some of you probably have been through that cycle before, you know, where you're serving God and things are going great, and then you forget God and things aren't going so good. And then you, you realize you're all kinds of problems. There's bondage back into your life. There's addiction issues. You know, you're struggling with things. You finally go, God, forgive me. And you ask for God's forgiveness. He comes along and forgives you. Isn't that awesome? And he begins to revive and restore you. And then you're back on, up again. But, you know, Israel did this over and over again. I've read their story. And, you know, that's sometimes seen in our own individual lives. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. We see that cycle happening. But I want to assure us that God is able to keep us. Sometimes we look at ourselves and say, I'm struggling. But you listen to what Corinthians teaches us. And I was reading this this morning. I thought, this is so beautiful. He will also keep you firm to the end. 
God is able to keep you. He says he is. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many think it's an amazing promise that God can keep us so that we can actually enter his presence and actually come in a state of victory and not a state of defeat? God is faithful. Notice it didn't say we're faithful. You and I can honestly say we haven't always been that faithful. But God is faithful. And that's what I'm trying to get our focus on. I want us to focus away from ourselves and focus in on God. Every time we look at ourselves, you know, we get discouraged. Every time we look at ourselves, we tend to find, you know, we're either, we have deficiencies and liabilities. But when we're looking to God, we go, no, but God's good. God's faithful. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason why we can become blameless, the reason why God can keep us is because God is faithful. How many are so thankful for that? And we've got to look away from ourselves sometimes and look away from our inconsistencies and realize that God is consistent. And that's where our focus needs to be and that's where we're going to move towards today. Now, what are some of the keys to walking humbly before God? Because let's face it, when we, you know, think that we're, you know, good stuff, we end up faltering and we end up failing. But when we walk humbly before our God, when we walk with a consistent dependency on God, and by the way, isn't that what prayer really is all about? Prayer is a sense of dependency on God. Prayer is an admission that you and I are incapable of doing what needs to be done. We're acknowledging our need for God. That's why I think we need to be people of prayer. I think that's why we need to be devoted to prayer. We need to acknowledge God, you know, as as we have meals, as we, we get up in the morning, acknowledge his presence, acknowledge our need for him. We get into the word. We're, we're people living in dependency upon God. We, we recognize that we have to trust him. How many love those beautiful verses from Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? What's the next part say? Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And what will happen? He'll direct your paths. Do you know what the next part of the verse says? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Isn't that true? That's the part we don't memorize. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you've got it all together. Don't get to be smart. You know, don't get too full of yourself. That's what he's saying. Remember, you know, who you are. You know, we're dust. God's God and we need him. And we recognize that in our lives. And so let's take a look a little bit of the cycle. And after the failure, we're going to see God's mercy. So the first stage of the spiritual cycle is is usually we have success in life's challenges and battles. You know, there's usually this, you know, we're doing it kind of a thing. And, you know, we all want to be victorious. We all want to live, you know in a sense of where our lives are coming together. There's fruitfulness, and it's a good life, and we are living this abundant life that Jesus promises us. But the temptation is, when we're experiencing it, we forget God. You know, isn't that what Moses warned the Israelites when he said, listen, when you go into the promised land, don't forget God. When God starts to bless you, don't forget God. And it's a warning that we all have to take heed to because otherwise we will you know just do our own thing and that's problematic for all of our lives you know yeah one thing we need to understand we'll get here let's let's take a look at first chronicles chapter 20 verse 4 it says in the course of time war broke out with the philistines how many realize that when you're really seeking god and walking with god there's spiritual opposition how many have discovered that 
Anybody figured that out yet? And then when you're struggling a lot of times, the opposition, and maybe you're, you're not even noticing opposition, that's not a good place. That usually means you're defeated and you're a captive. So we're either in one of two conditions. We're either defeated and in captivity or else we're walking in victory and there's spiritual battles going on. There's opposition. But I love what happens. David is trying to unite a nation. They're tribal people. There's 12 tribes. He's trying to bring them all together and unify them into one. That's a pretty precarious and difficult task to bring unity to a diverse group of people. Some of these groups even fought with each other. So to bring them all together under one leader, that was very difficult. And David didn't try to bring them around himself. David literally brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and had the people focus in on God. That's what brought the people together. That's what will always bring people together. And then it says in the course of time, verse 4, war broke out with the Philistines. Remember those guys? The Philistines were Israel's longtime enemy. As a matter of fact, the prior king, Saul, was unable to defeat them. And as a matter of fact, he lost his life to the Philistines. And earlier in David's career, he had fought one of the Philistines, a giant by the name of Goliath. Most of us know that story from 1 Samuel 17. It goes on to say, at that time, Sibekai, the Hushite, killed Sipai, one of the descendants of the Raphaites, and the Philistines were subjugated. In other words, they were defeated. So who are these Raphaites? You know, who are these people? Well, we're getting a little clue because if you look back earlier into the book of Genesis, you find out that the Raphaites were these giants. And remember the story of Moses trying to go into the promised land? He sent the spies and he says, we can't go in there. And the spies came back and they said, there's giants in the land. And so these Anakites or Raphamites, these are the giants in the land. And I believe that's a metaphor for all of us today, that there are giants in our, in our lives, isn't there not? There are things that we have to conquer in order to possess what God has for us. There's things we have to overcome in our life in order for us to experience what God wants to give our lives. And so we have to win over these giants. See, David had to kill his giant, did he not? And so now we're going to read that giants are going to come down here. So it says here, uh, In another battle with the Philistines, Elhanah, son of Jair, Kill Lammy, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. Remember Goliath's the name of the giant David fought? Well, here's his brother. There's five giants that David and his men killed. And so we read of these battles that these men are fighting. And still another battle which took place at Gath. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Twenty-four in all. He was a descendant from Rapha, or he was a Raphaite. Okay. And some of the times we read the scriptures and we go, I don't know about this, you know, guy with six fingers on each hands and, you know, six toes on each feet. You know, before you're in disbelief, I remember one time I was traveling on a trip and I saw this gentleman and I looked down, he was at a restaurant and I couldn't believe it. He had six fingers on each hands and he was a big boy, big man. Okay. So, you know, why did that stick in my mind? Because I knew this text of Scripture, and I went, wow, there are people out there. I mean, that was the only person I've ever seen in my entire life, but I went, that's amazing. You're looking at me like, really, Pastor? I'm going, yeah, that's really <laughs> when he When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were the descendants of Repha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So, 
The chronicler is giving us a summary of some of the challenges that stood in the path of the nations uh, that kept them from being free. And so they had to overcome these giants. And I think we have to, we have to face our giants. We have to face our fears in life. We can't possess God's blessing unless we address these things. But oftentimes what we try to do is avoid them. Isn't that true? Let's not even deal with this stuff. But to really have victory in their life, we have to confront our fears. We have to confront the things that are hindering us from moving forward in our lives. Obedience literally breaks the bondage and fears that hold us back. You know, disobedience leads to defeat. Obedience leads to victory. Because obedience means I'm literally trusting God. I'm actually doing what he says to do, even though I may have a lot of misgivings inside of my soul. I may be struggling with doing it, but I'm going, I'm just going to bite the bullet and do it anyways, because I know it's the right thing to do. So how do we apply this in our lives? What difficulties are you battling with today? You have relational issues? Maybe you have, you know, people issues? I mean, besides, I guess it's the same one, you know, um, health issues, financial issues. We could just keep going down the list. We're all dealing with something. There's not one person in this room does not have something that's a challenge before them. And you and I have to address those things in our lives. You know, it was during, you know, a very critical time in in the life of our church. You know, remember I told you I was here for 10 years and then I left and then I came back. So I've been here 30 years all, all told. But while I was gone, the church went through a very challenging moment in its history. And there was a lot of conflict when I came back. And when I came back, the church was deeply divided. and Another congregation started and people were demoralized. Very challenging moment. And you know what? I, you know, I didn't know what to do at first. I started praying and God directed me to lead our church in a season of fasting and prayer. And, you know, how many know if I'd have come up to the church and said, okay, we're going to fast and pray for 40 days. I probably would not have had a very good response. How many say that's probably true, Pastor? Not a lot of people sign up for something like that. So I said, no, why don't we uh, fast this week? And those that want to fast, go ahead. But I felt impressed I needed to fast. So I fasted week number one, okay? In week number two, I felt in my soul we should be doing this for 40 days, but I didn't want to tell the church that. We had gone through an entire week, and some things were starting to happen in people's lives. And so in week number two, I, I, I had a little fleece. I don't normally do this, but I, I said, God, if you'll bring at least 100 people. This is back in the church, at 300 people. If you'll bring 100 people four nights in a row. So we're out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday night, and Sunday night. That was a lot, right? Friday night was free. I said, if they'll come up four nights in a row, Monday through Thursday, at least 100 people, I'll continue to fast for 40 days. Do you know in that six weeks, the only four nights there were 100 people was in that second week. (laughs) So I ended up fasting for 40 days. But I'll tell you what was good about it. I lost a little weight, yeah. (laughs) More important... 
people began to respond to God. People were crying out to God. People began to confess their sins. And God brought healing into the life of this congregation. What a powerful thing that began to happen. How many know that when you and I begin to address the sin issues in our life, God starts moving in a supernatural way. And we began to see extraordinary growth. We saw people coming in. I don't even know how people heard about this prayer and fasting thing. People were showing up. I had no idea who they were. They're going, well, I heard this prayer and fasting in this church. You know, people were coming to prayer and fasting. It was amazing. I was shocked by what was going on at that moment. But God was the initiator. I don't think this is just, well, here's a plan to you know, turn your church around. I go, no, you have to be led by the Spirit of God. Okay? So God did something unusual then. I was thinking back to another gentleman by the name of Edwin Orr. He was very famous back in the 30s. He was a very well-known speaker. And one of the people that came to one of his services was a young man by the name of Billy Graham. Anybody ever heard of Billy Graham? <clears throat> Well, Billy Graham, this is before he became very well-known. Before his Los Angeles crusade in 1949, Billy Graham was not well-known. And he was going through a tremendous crisis in his soul. And I'll tell you what the crisis was. He had been to seminary, and in seminary, you can go one of two ways. You had to get closer to God, or you get totally wrecked. And there were people that were being messed up. They were being challenged on the authority of the Bible. And Billy Graham was wrestling as God's Word truly the inspired Word of God. He was wrestling with that. And he went to this meetings and hear, heard Dr. Edwin Orr speak. And when he was speaking, Dr. Orr was speaking on full surrender. And Billy Graham, in one of those meetings, made a life-altering decision. He decided to fully surrender his life to God and stop questioning and doubting and just believe what God had to say. And it literally transformed his soul. Dr. Edwin Orr has written a lot of books on revival, and this is what he said. The key to real revival is when people personally address their own sin issues and confess them before God and are delivered as a result. So often we're praying, oh God, please do a great spiritual work in our country. Isn't that true? God, bring revival to our land. God, transform the nation. And you know, we can read of times in scripture and in history when God has done that. But let me tell you, the beginnings of all of those moves of God always starts with the individual reconnecting to God and dealing with their own personal issues. Gypsy Smith, who was a very famous evangelist, when he was speaking once said, if you want to have revival, draw a circle. Step inside and say, Lord, begin with me. And God starts to work in a very powerful way. But let me move on to the second stage of, uh, we've covered this. Second stage to the spiritual cycle is succumbing to temptation. So we start out living in spiritual victory, And then we start drifting from God because we're enjoying the blessings instead of trusting God. And then all of a sudden a temptation comes and we find ourselves succumbing. We find ourselves yielding to the temptation. We find ourselves sliding into something and the next thing you know, it entraps us. And now we're in trouble. We have to remember, we are in a spiritual battle. And the subtle temptation that success can lead is to a false confidence in ourselves. See, I got to that place after 10 years in this church. A false sense of confidence in myself. And God goes, I'll fix that. 
And how many know God's good about fixing things? And when he got done with me, he fixed it. That's not been an issue since that time. I just go, no, I know what's going on here. You see, if, if you have a big enough lesson, you never forget it. If it's painful enough, you don't forget it. You know, and if it's over a longer period of time, I've gone through seasons, and I'm talking not just, you know, a few days or a few weeks. I'm talking years. You learn those lessons, you know, and say, hey, this is the way it works. Now, None of us, leaders included, are above being defeated. We need to understand that. We cannot have confidence in ourselves. We must have confidence in God. Here in 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says something very interesting. Then Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of the nation. Now, that's an amazing statement. Why was it a bad thing for David to start numbering everybody? Because what David was doing at this moment was, you know, numbers aren't bad. Everyone thinks that's bad. No, no, there's a book called Numbers. So, I mean, even God took census in the Old Testament. What was bad here was that David was experiencing victory and he wanted to know how many people were in his kingdom and he was looking at finding out the size of his army because David was moving from his reliance upon God to his reliance upon his assets, And don't you think it's true in our lives that sometimes we do that same thing? We move from reliance upon God to trusting what's in our bank account. We can move from our reliance upon God to trusting in what other people can do for us rather than trusting God. And that's what was happening here. But this text is very fascinating because in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1, we have the, 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 the person that's writing in Samuel these words. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, God, incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So now we have one writer saying God is responsible, and the next it says Satan is responsible. How do you justify that somewhat seemingly contradiction? But let me help us understand something. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, those were all written before the exile, historically. First and Second Chronicles were written after the exile, okay? So we have a different time and a different way of writing, number one. Number two, the chronicler is trying to use the historical lessons from the past to teach theology to the nation. That's an important point. Number three, God was upset with the nation, the people themselves. And so God said, I'm going to discipline the nation. How am I going to do it? I'm going to get David to do something stupid. You know? And what, how did God go about doing it? He allowed Satan access into David's life so that Satan tempted David. In other words, Satan can never do more than what God allows him to do. How are you, are you somehow seeing this? So in a Jewish mindset, Satan is only a tool of God. He's never the one that has free access into our lives. And the only way he can have any damage in our life is number one, God allows it, or number two, you and I allow him to. Now God is the one that can take care of us and protect us. We need to know that. And if we're walking humbly before God, Satan has no avenues into our life. It's real simple. But if we open up avenues, yes, the enemy will come through those avenues. And so we see it here. Now, why, were, why was God upset with the people? Well, some, some scholars believe it was because they had rebelled against David as the king and had gone after Absalom. And this was a, a, a judgment against them. 
It could be. I don't know. Who knows? But that is one possibility. The second thing is that David himself mustn't have been in the right spot to allow himself to be tempted that way. And that also shows us that even godly people can be tempted. How many know that's true? There's no person in this room that's above temptation. No one, no human being is above temptation. And we need to know that. So the mere taking of a census was hardly sinful, but in this instance, it represented an unwarranted glorying in and dependence on human power rather than the Lord. Okay, so he was looking for security in the wrong place, and sometimes we do that as well. When things are going good, the temptation to trust ourselves and our abilities and our actions and our wisdom many times leaves an open door for a lot of stupid decisions. How many say that's true? And how many know that, you know, when you look back, some of the stupid things you did, you go, why in the world, what was I thinking when I did that? Anybody say that's true? You know, because I've noticed one thing about sin. Sin is not rational behavior. Has anybody figured that out yet? Sin is irrational behavior. And we're not thinking straight when we do it. And sometimes we say things and do things, and later on we regret that we've said and done those things. But the good news is God is a forgiving God, and we're going to see that in a moment. So in this passage of study, we find that David now even overrules... uh, I'll come back to that one. David overrules the voice of warning. But let me just make mention here. This is an interesting insight by Colin Morris. He said, evil is not the result of souls being sold to Satan. He said, rather, he said, our problem is not that we worship the devil, but that the devil worships us. Well, there's a very interesting thought. I'm just going to throw it out to you. He said this, He does not set himself up against God as a candidate for your allegiance. He encourages you to set yourself up against God and make yourself a God. He confirms you in your pride. He is your greatest fan. He'll tell you how awesome you are. You know, he coddles you in well-being and reflects for your highest satisfaction, your highest estimates of yourself. He'll come along and pat you on the back and tell you how great you are. It is these egotistic tendencies to which none of us are strangers that stand us in such need of prayer. And by the way, that's what's happening in our culture today. If you think about it, as a culture, we have ditched God. How many say that's true? As a culture, we've thrown God in the backseat. And we have elevated humanity, and we're doing our thing. And isn't that all what sin is? We've all gone our own way. We've all, you know left off where God is at. We've all thought we could do it. We all want to do it our way. We want to do our thing. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's what the scriptures teach. And that's really, we've put ourselves in the place of God. Listen, you and I can't manage that. You and I can't handle that. It's too much for us. We need to be dependent on God. We're not smart enough to handle all that's going to come against our lives. We just don't have the resources to handle that apart from God. So now we see that in this passage, David is actually being warned not to do this. Isn't this good that God actually brings people into our lives when we're about to make a stupid decision and say, hey, what are you thinking? And you know, if you have friends like that that will come to you and tell you that you're being stupid, thank God for those kind of people. You know, I tell you, my greatest, the person that does that the most in my life is Patty, my wife, you know. 
Anybody else have that? Your greatest advocate is your spouse, and they tell you when you're doing something stupid. Anybody here? Is that, is that, is that anybody else willing to acknowledge that? Yeah, you know, your spouse is going, what are you thinking, you know? And a lot of times we get, we get upset with our spouse, you know, like, why are you telling me this? Like, don't you like me? And the, 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 right, and, the, and the answer is, of course they like you. They're just keeping you from being an idiot, you know? <laughs> That's important. Thank God for people like that. If you've got people that love you enough to say to you, what are you thinking? And don't do that because it's going to do irreparable damage to you. That's a loving thing to do. Now, can I just say this? When you have people in your life, you, that's why it's, it's important not to isolate yourself as Christians, have meaningful relationship with other believers. And when you see somebody doing something stupid, you know, you don't just go running in there blasting off. What you should be doing is praying. Step one, prayer. Step number two, ask God when you should go talk to them. Step number three, ask God what you should say to them when you go talk to them. You know, because sometimes we can do a lot of damage with our mouths and actually hurt people. But, you know, I think if you're praying, and I've had this experience before, I'm praying for someone and I, I'm really deeply concerned and I'm and agonizing and I'm praying and I finally feel like God says, okay, you can go talk to him now. And I've had this experience where people have said to me, Pastor, if you'd have come to me the day before, I'd have not received that. I wasn't ready for it. But for some reason, I know I was thinking about this stuff last night, and now that you're speaking it this morning, this is exactly what I needed to hear. Now that's God. That's not me. I'm not that bright. God knows what's going on in the other person's heart. So it's important that we're just not walking around like I'm the person that's going to straighten everybody out. Now that's not my role in life. But if I'm a loving person and I see someone I deeply love doing something that I know is detrimental to them and to others, and I don't start praying for them, and then I don't speak into their life, then I'm really not that loving of a friend. Faithful are the what? The wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. True friendship is willing to risk the friendship to say, I love you so much, I just can't watch you destroy yourself like this. I'm going to step in and do something. Okay? That's what I'm talking about. And it's so fascinating how it happens to David. In verse 3 of chapter 21, But Joab said, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over, my lord the king. Are they not all my lord's subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? In other words, you're gonna, this is going to cost us, David. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. And Joab reported the fighting men to David. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of, the, in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. Now, I got to ask the question, who in the world is Joab? Well, Joab is actually David's general. And if you study Joab, he's not even a nice guy. Actually, Joab is kind of an evil guy. He's done a lot of nasty things in his life. But here's this guy that seems to be out of touch with God. He has more, he's more in touch with God at this moment than David is, the godly king. And how many have ever been rebuked by a wicked person before? I mean, how many know it's really embarrassing when a non-believer says, you're sure not acting like a Christian? And you and I go, you, we, can, we can get indignant, you know, like, what? Who do you think you are? I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. No, God's talking through them. And that's pretty bad when the wicked person's telling you to straighten up. How many see it? So listen, God is going to try to warn us of our behavior. I could even talk about another guy by the name of Balaam. God even used his donkey to talk to him. 
Then on the poor donkey's getting beaten. He goes, listen, did I ever mess you up before? Why are you beating me? I mean, can you imagine the donkey talking to this guy? You know, that did get Balaam's attention, by the way. He says, why are you beating on me? I've never done anything evil to you before. And then God opened his eyes and an angel was about ready to lop off his head with a sword. The donkey spared his life, you know. Oh, I tell you, we are funny creatures as human beings, aren't we not? One of the problems of sin is that there's always consequences. How many know that's true? You know, you know, God doesn't have some people go, well, you know, I like you so much, you can do anything you want. If you sin, there's no problem. It doesn't work that way. No, sin is our enemy. It's going to be destructive to all of our lives. Matter of fact, Isaiah tells us, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your inequities, that's another word for sin, has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Wow, this is powerful stuff. You know, sometimes when we are doing the wrong stuff, God's going, I'm not hearing you. I'm not hearing you. You know, go, oh, God, can you do this? I'm not hearing you. Because God's waiting for us to straighten out what we're doing wrong. As a matter of fact, if I'm not in a good relationship with Patty, I'm in trouble. Because the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Husbands, if you don't treat your wife as the weaker vessel with great respect, God says, it will hinder your prayer life. I cannot afford personally to have my relationship with God hindered because I have a bad relationship with my wife. And I could flip that around and say with my husband, if I was a woman. You know, my prayer life, and I'm not just talking as a pastor, your prayer life and my prayer life are contingent on our relationship with other people. As a matter of fact, God says, if you have ought against a brother or sister, you're to leave your gift at the altar and go attend to that and make that right and then come back and talk to God because God says, I can't hear you. Right? He's saying it. You got to take care of that stuff so God will hear you. How many think it's important that God hears us? Yeah, I, 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 need, I need to have an open book with God. I need to have open access to God. David's decision now is interesting because in verse 9, the prophet Gad comes to him and says, go tell David. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. In other words, God says, I'm going to give you three options of how to discipline you. Number one, three years of famine. Number two, three months of being swept away before your enemies. Or number three, three days of the sword of the Lord, days days of plagues in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then decide how I should answer the one who sent me. So you got, this is like, you know, let's make a deal. There's three doors. You know, David, you got three options. Which one are you going to choose? Three years of famine? No, I'll pass on that. Three years of your enemies overtaking? I'll pass on that. Or three days with God's... David says, I'm going to pick door number three. I'm going with the God thing. He says here... No, it says here, And David said to uh, to, uh, Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. Isn't that interesting? David says... I'd rather have God discipline me than anybody else because God is the most merciful person, period. I'll choose God. I'll choose his mercy. Because I know God will discipline me, but he will have mercy in the process. And then we read the story. You know, and then David, 
now looks up in verse 16 and he sees the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. I mean, that's a pretty terrifying experience. God's death angel. You know, in one night he killed 185,000 Assyrians with a plague. So this is, this is intense. David sees it. Then it says here, David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. So now how does God balance justice with mercy? Well, number three, he brings about sacrifice. How many know in the Old Testament, the thing that you notice the most is there's a lot of sacrificing going on. How many figure that out? Poor animals. They're always dying for some human being's sin. How many know that's true? Because they are a substitute for man's sin. Because the wages of sin is what? It's death. And so God says, okay, something's dying. And usually it's an animal. And so people are confessing their sins, laying hands over these animals. A lot of dead animals. Because there's a lot of sinning going on, right? And then we get to the New Testament. God says, I'm done with all these animals. They're just to teach us something. I'm going to send my son to earth. God himself becomes a man and he comes to earth, and he dies for our sin, once and for all, one sacrifice. How many think that's pretty amazing? That is amazing when you think about it. God takes on human punishment. So, there has to be, there's a need for an altar where the sacrifice for sin is offered up. So we get this story in the Old Testament now. They're going to go get an altar built. Let's pick up the story in chapter 21, verse 18. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word of what Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. And while Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel, his four sons who were with him. They hid themselves. How many of us? Pretty terrifying experience. Now he's seeing the angel. There's always a price to sacrifice. Verse 22, Then David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at full price. Aruna said to David, Take it, it's yours. Like he could see the death angel too. Let my lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give all of this. But David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. In other words, David said, No, no, this is not the way it's going to work. This is my problem. I've got to address it. I'm going to pay the full price for you know, the site, the animals, everything. I'll take care of that. Now, the Bible then says... That fire came down from heaven, which is, speaks of God's acceptance of that offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel in verse 27, and he said, put the sword back into its sheath. And at that time, when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jezbusite, he offered sacrifices there. Not only did he offer an initial sacrifice, David began to offer what kind of sacrifices now? After he was forgiven, what kind of sacrifices do you think David started offering? Thanksgiving. He started thanking God. 
He started rejoicing in God's mercy. Let me explain something to you. God in his love and mercy is going to discipline us. And there's only two responses that happen in our life. Pharaoh, when God was disciplining him and his nation, what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. When David was being disciplined by God, what did he do? He, his heart was broken. God says, I'll not despise a broken and contrite heart. David's heart opened up and said, I'm wrong. I admit I'm the problem. I did it. I'm guilty. You know? Powerful. So God's chastisement, his discipline, is the way God addresses sins in our lives and brings us many times to a place of desperation. Isn't that true? You know, how many can honestly say that there's been moments in your life you've come to a place of desperation? You've come to a place of desperation. Well, some of us have. <clears throat> some of you, I, I, I fear for you. <laughs> or else some of us, we just need a lot of discipline. I don't know. I thought I was a pretty good kid, but I've been disciplined a few times, believe me. First Chronicles, it goes on to say, <clears throat> says something very interesting. The consequence of sin hopefully makes us realize how terrible sin really is. And we're not just sad about the consequences, we're sad by the fact that we did the original sin. In 1 Chronicles 21, 29, it says, The tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the desert and the altar of burnt offerings were at that time on the high place at Gibeon. Gibeon was a community where the altar and tabernacle of Moses had been kept. But now God was going to bring everything together in one place. And so we come to this amazing revelation in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 1. Then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here. And also the altar burnt offering for Israel is to be here. And Michael Wilcox, a scholar, writes this, Here by divine command is to be the site of the temple. It is, not, it is a gift not from Aruna, but from God. In other words, God says, this is the site I'm choosing. The grace of God in giving this to his people as the place where the ark and the altar are to be brought together is a thing to be wondered at. Here shall be the house where on a hill on which 800 years earlier another had been offered, another sacrifice, and another disaster had been averted. God, at that moment, had shown himself to be the giver of life from the dead. And when the chronicler comes to record the start of Solomon's work on the temple, he will tell us that the building is on Mount Moriah. Surely intending that his readers will make the connection between that and the only other occurrence of Mount Moriah in the scripture, which was 800 years earlier, which is the story of Abraham offering up his son. And God intervenes and provides a thicket, remember, a, a, a ram in the thicket. The mountain on which Abraham is offering is the mountain on which God is going to build his temple. How many think that's pretty amazing? Is that, is that an amazing story? But it doesn't stop there. Because a thousand years after David and Solomon, God raises up another sacrificial, sacrificial offering. It's not exactly in that identical spot, but just outside the walls of the city is a hill called Mount Calvary, where God himself became a man and laid himself down as an offering. What an amazing thing. God continuing to show mercy upon mercy 
at the hands of humanity and our sin. I think that's extremely amazing and powerful. God led Abraham to the place. God led David to the place. God led his son to the place. And you know, this is the place where God's going to lead each one of us to. We have to come to this place. It's the place of the cross. And here's the good news, that if you and I confess our sins, what does God do? He's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. But it doesn't stop there. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, a lot of us in this room, we, 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 we've, we've, we've made this decision. Yes, I've given my life to Christ. Yes, I accept that Jesus died for my sin. Yes, he's my sacrifice for my sin. Yes, I'm free from the penalty of sin. But a lot of people in this room right now, you're still struggling with sin. Because sin is a powerful force. And you know, a lot of our addictions and behaviors that are we know that are wrong, we're struggling with those things. That's the power of sin. And I want to declare to you today that God not only has the power to forgive your sin and to forgive you and take away the penalty of it, God has the power today to deliver you from its power. We're going to stand this morning. We're going to close the service. Here's what I'm going to say to us. You and I have failed God. God has never failed us. He's faithful. He's never failed us. We have failed God at different points in our life. But the good news is God, even though he he loves us so much, he will discipline us to bring us to the end of ourselves so that you and I can experience his mercy. That's the goal. God is not interested in, in wiping us out. God is interested in having us being reconciled back to himself. Isn't that powerful? God wants us to experience His mercy. God wants to experience His grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. And I'm going to ask you to do something courageous today. Nobody knows what it's about. We're not going to ask you what it's about. But I know as a pastor, there are people in our congregation, you're battling things. And you're struggling with issues in your life. And you're ashamed. And you maybe got guilt in your life. And you just don't feel like you're overcoming. Whatever it is, whatever issue in your life, you have struggled and struggled and struggled and you just go, Pastor, I I try to do the right thing. I ask God to forgive me, but I just keep going back to it. I just can't seem to get shake free from it. And today you're saying, you know what? I want to be free. I want to come to the altar of mercy today and experience God's power over my sin. I want God to deliver me today. I want to live in spiritual victory. I'm tired of living in spiritual defeat. I want to walk in freedom. I want to walk in the joy and the peace and the promise of this abundant life that Jesus declared that would be ours if we followed him. That's you today. I just want you to come really quickly right now. Just come. Don't worry about everybody else. Last service, a lot of people came forward. They just said, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of struggling. I want to be free today. You just come right now, quickly. You're not going to have to tell anybody what it is. That's between you and God. I'm not here to, we're not here to judge you. We're not here to condemn you. We want you to be free today. We want you to be free today. I'm going to pray and you're going to pray and we're going to believe God today and I'm going to give you some instructions on how to maintain your freedom. Because God, you've done this before. You've asked God to forgive you, but you're going, I just keep going back to why. I'm going to explain how to retain freedom That's important too, isn't it? It's one thing to know I'm forgiven. It's one thing to know I've been delivered. 
but then later on to go back to why? How can I maintain this freedom? You come this morning. Just come right to the front. Whatever the issue is, come. Just step right up. So the people behind you, can you move up closer and let others come up? That's great. Very good. Thank you so much. Okay, here's what I'm going to say to you. I'm going to, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask our altar workers, and you know, some of you mature saints, elders, deacons, why don't you just come? Just come and lay your hands on your brothers and sisters. Just lay your hand on them. It's going to believe God to set people free today. You come, staff, you come today. I want you to feel the love of God. I want you to experience the mercy of God today. He's a God who shows mercy after human failure. We're going to pray today. So, Father, we come before you today. We open our hearts to you. We acknowledge that we've sinned against you. And we, you know, we're, we're tired of it. We don't want to live in this defeated condition. We want to be free. And we know that there's a power today that is so great. It's a power living within us. When we gave our life to you, you came within our lives, Father. And it's so great, this power. The Bible says that this power is the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that defeated sin and Satan and death itself. This power now lives within us. And that's why the word of God declares to us today, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That power is now living inside of us. And it's a power to set us free from sin. And I pray right now, Lord, even as my brothers and sisters are saying, Lord, take this from me. Deliver me from this pain, this this struggle that I'm in battling. Set me free, Father. Set me free right now. I ask for your freedom today. I ask for your forgiveness today. I'm receiving it right now as a gift from above. I believe there's a power in me that's greater than my sin, and I'm receiving it right now. And I thank you for that right now in the name of Jesus. I'm receiving your power to live a victorious Christian life. Here's now what I'm going to say to you, how to maintain that freedom. So, Pastor, okay, I receive the gift. I receive forgiveness. I receive it now. I know there's a power greater inside of me than than my sin, but here's how to maintain it. You remember when Jesus said you can cast out an evil spirit and the house is clean? And then if the house stays empty, what happens? Seven worse spirits come back and fill the house. You've got to fill the house. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? It means that all the time that you have given to this addictive, sinful behavioral pattern, I want you to take that time and give it to the Word of God. The Bible says, if you will meditate on my Word day and night, you shall be prosperous and successful. It will start rechanging the way your mind thinks. The Bible is so powerful. It's a renewing element. It, It renews your mind. It changes. As a matter of fact, every day as I'm spending time in the Word of God, it's changing the way I see God, what I understand about God, what I understand about myself. It's changing things in how I see life. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And everything all starts coming together. The conversations I hear, I just, it, it, the Word of God starts connecting in a way. It's so powerful. And so a lot of times we're just not giving ourselves to this incredible spiritual life that God has for us, to be in fellowship with Him. You know, let's say you're lonely and you're isolated, you're by yourself. You know what? Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I say, Lord, you're with me right now. Some of you are lonely. A lot of times you're doing things because you're lonely. Can I tell you something right now? We're all empty 
Everyone in this room, there's an emptiness in their soul. And we try to fill it with other things. They will never satisfy. Only God can satisfy that longing. I say, you know, Lord, no matter how much people love you, it's never enough, is it? Our need to be loved is so great. I say, God, you are the author of love. Would you come and fill my soul with your presence, your love in my heart? Only God can fill that longing, that emptiness inside of you. Only God has that ability to do that. So you need to just start crying out to him. Stop looking for meaning, significant purpose, enjoyment, all those things and many other things. Look to God for it. Say, Lord, you are my delight. You're my joy. Come today and fill me. Open up my mind and heart to your words today. Give me understanding. Speak into my soul. You know, when you're tempted, just start to do that. Go to the word of God. I'll tell you, the devil will stop bugging you if you keep going to the Bible. He goes, this is not working. Every time I tempt them, they go to the Bible. That's not a good plan for him. It's a great plan for us. Like, hey, keep, keep going to the Bible, right? Just keep going to the Word of God. Spend time. Let God speak into your spirit. He'll encourage you. He'll strengthen you. He really will. So we're not just, we didn't just pray a prayer of deliverance today. I believe God heard that cry. I'm telling you, I'm giving you a responsibility how to stay free. Everybody heard it? Do you think that's important? I think it's really important. Otherwise, you're going to be back here next week. We could do the same thing. You'll just come right back. Go, I blew it last week, Pastor. I'm going, no, you don't have to blow it next week. You can say, Lord, this is what I'm going to do instead. When that thought comes to take on whatever I was doing, I'm just going, nope, taking my Bible, I'm going to start reading the scriptures. You know, you keep doing that every time. Let me tell you, you're going to do more Bible reading than you've ever done before in your life. You're going to pick up your Bible reading this week. Just watch. It's going to go up in a higher level. And God's going to start speaking into your life. He's going, see, I can help you. I can help you with this. Isn't that beautiful, Jesus? All you who are weak and heavy laden. What does he say? Come to me. Come to me. And you'll find rest for your souls. That's what God wants to do for you. All right? Lord, I just thank you this morning. Beautiful day. I thank you for your mercies. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I know right now that everyone that came here and said, Lord, I want to be forgiven, you forgave them. You forgave them. You're a forgiving God. That's what you wanted. You just wanted to tell us how much you love us and that you're going to, you've forgiven us. We are forgiven. Just say to yourself right now, I am forgiven. Say that to yourself. I am forgiven. Now say this. I am free. And believe it. And walk in it. You are free. There's a power inside of me that is greater than my sin. Can you say that now? There's a power inside of me that is greater than my sin. And Lord, you are that power within me that is greater than my sin. You live in me. And I'm not making room for sin. I'm making room for you. I'm making room for you today. I want your fullness. I want to experience a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And when you're a happy person, you're not going to do bad stuff. You're happy. So be happy. Be happy in Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.